Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, I have a really fun interview with one of my very good friends, Mike Wu, who's a co-founder of Converge Strategies. Mike and I have very parallel career paths, and Mike has been instrumental in developing the defense energy space. We're going to really talk about energy and national security, what's happening at the Pentagon, you know, sort of the development of the space, and really, where are there opportunities for developing companies and technologies to be a part of that uh, conversation? So I hope you enjoy. Mike, it's great to finally have you at Experts Only. Yeah, thanks, John. I, I felt a lot better when I listened to your podcast with your co-founder, Tom. And he similarly said it was difficult right. to get on the podcast. So I feel a lot better about... He was hosting at one point. So he has, we don't have an excuse there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you and I have been friends for a long time. And we have very similar career paths. And I really want to dive into the exciting thing that's, that are continuing to happen in the defense energy space. But before that, you know, talk a little bit about you. Sort of what got you interested in this? you know, and really how did you sort of start to build out a career in this space? And, you know, as we were talking offline, as you were finishing grad school uh, or law school, right? First of all, why did you, why did you want to become a lawyer? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, you know, my dad's a lawyer and he had a job that he loved that made people's lives better. And so growing up, um, I had this example of somebody who works in child advocacy, child welfare, foster care reform, and things like that, but who who had those aspects of a life that I really wanted, and I saw a legal career as a pathway to achieve that. And then through your law school work, you ended up working for the Office of Secretary of Defense, OSD, which for folks that don't know, the Pentagon is really one of the most senior tiers of the Pentagon in their general counsel office. First, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I sort of lucked into it. So I went to WashU University in St. Louis for law school. And they had a program that allowed you to go to D.C. for a semester. And that allowed me to, to, to work in the Pentagon for the first time. I had been really focused on being a national security law professional, um, working in you know, issues of national security, issues of international law, um, and, and particularly how the military operates in the bounds of the laws of armed conflict, and thought that was going to be my career. Um, so I was really focused on you know, working on specifically detention of terrorism suspects. How do we look at the ways in which... Topic. <laughs> yeah, such an easy topic. No no real ethical or, um, or operational concerns there. Um, but yeah, how are we prosecuting, you know, this war with uh, non-state terrorist organizations, but also doing so in ways that uh, reflect our values, uh, that reflect, you know, what we are trying to achieve and this is post-strategic um, objectives. Still, Guantanamo Bay was obviously highly in the, in the discussion. Yeah, standing up the military commissions for you know how we were going to um, work with and, and and prosecute cases against terrorists in Guantanamo. But how how do we ensure that we're you know meeting the legal requirements of habeas corpus and 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 things like that? It's a fascinating topic, endlessly interesting. But that's when uh, that's when a little organization that you helped start, little campaign that you helped start, really <laughs> d- yeah. diverted me from that path. <laughs> so we took you away from uh, detaining terrorists and got you interested in clean energy. 
So you came to work at Operation Free. For folks that don't know, Operation Free was a campaign we started around the climate the climate talks of 2009, 2010 to get national security, veterans and national security experts involved in the involved in the debate and in an active role in playing. And, and Mike ran it for a while. So first of all, you know, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I mean, so you know, coming to Operation Free. I, I knew that I wanted to work in national security. I knew that climate and energy were really going to be key issues going forward. And, but I didn't really have any background in energy policy. Um, I had worked on the Hill previously, and I had worked in the Pentagon previously. And so that was um, sort of what I pointed to as experience that would make me a good fit. And then immediately fell for it. Immediately fell for the idea for for both the energy, national security nexus, but even more particularly for the military, clean energy, national security nexus, the idea that, you know, we could be pursuing clean energy solutions. And and not only would those be good from an environmental and sustainability standpoint, but that they would be good for our national security. So if you're listening and you are a veteran, Mike and I are actually part of a uh, restart of this campaign. It's called the Veterans Energy Project. You can go to veteransenergyproject.org and sign up uh, to be part of the converse, the national conversation, not just about DOD, but climate energy overall. So like like me, I went from Operation Free into the Pentagon. Instead of going to the Army, you went to the Air Force. Uh, at the time, the Air Force didn't really have a special advisor on ener- energy, and you helped sort of really ramp that up. What did you learn? You know, ha- First of all, what experience did you bring having been an OSD that helped you shape that role? And then for folks that don't understand what, you know, just paint a picture of what Air Force energy looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, number one, from Operation Free, what I took was uh, these incredible, not just uh, policy and understanding of the overall issues, but these incredible stories of veterans like you, like many others, veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, whose lives and whose missions were profoundly affected by the military's use of energy. The the U.S. military is the largest consumer of energy in the world. Um, They have a massive energy budget, you know, at the time, you know, between 16 and 20 billion dollars a year. Now closer to between 12 and 15 billion dollars a year. By the way, that's uh, a bit larger than some of the departments, the cabinet secretary in terms of their own budgets. That's right. and you can see why. I mean, it's an inc- it's the world's largest bureaucracy. Um, the things that the military can accomplish are absolutely breathtaking. From from not just uh, military operations and, and you know kinetic you know combat operations standpoint, but from a logistical standpoint, you know we can move anything in the world anywhere in forty eight hours. And when you think about the size and scale of some of these operations, that's it. That's incredible. But that comes with a huge energy tail. That comes with logistics concerns. And those logistics concerns, as, as you well know, um, were huge tactical vulnerabilities on the battlefield um, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan when you know, some assumptions about our ability to provide fuel, to provide supplies to you know, more remote operating environments, in particular where in a conflict where there weren't traditional battlefield lines, there weren't traditional battlefields, and you're in a counterinsurgency, like that, that's a totally different conflict than what our force structure was really prepared for. So, you know, seeing that and understanding ways in which renewable energy and clean energy could be a part of helping, you know, protect our forces 
and helping strengthen the resilience of our forces was really what drew me in to the campaign and to you know to this career. Um, and so I have I have you to thank for it. I always I always say I'm uh, following the John Powers career path. I also I also joined the army. Um, yeah, I, I was shortly after that. So you're hanging out with the Air Force folks and decided to become an Army JAG, <laughs> JAG officer. How has that experience been, especially hanging your hat on sort of both sides of the Pentagon? Yeah, I so you know the JAG Corps and, and being an Army officer has been well, quickly for it, people who don't know. Explain the JAG Corps. Yeah, so so every so the the JAG Corps is the Judge Advocate General Corps. Every um, military service has a JAG Corps. Um, they actually predate the Army JAG Corps predates the founding of the Republic. Um, ah. So it's uh, and and they are the lawyers. They are the the lawyers that help ensure the you know military operations comport with the laws of armed conflict. They are the lawyers who help you know do prosecute and defend cases in the military justice system. In the army, they're the lawyers that help ensure that contracts are um, you know are legally sufficient. And, and they've had a huge role in actual the ways in which combat operations are really conducted in, especially in, in, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and current day conflicts. You know, when you have people who are deciding whether a strike is legally sufficient from thousands of miles away, you know, you have a different command structure and a different and a different legal structure to really think about providing that kind of input to commanders who are making those life and death decisions on the battlefield. It's interesting. So um, I'm going to run it before we come back to talk about what you do today. What's interesting to me to make that point is not just the legal structure, actually the energy structure of that is it's so transformational to where we were when, you know, you think about sending uh, a division into uh, Northern Africa to invade Europe in World War II, right? Uh, Or sending them to Korea. Now you've got Folks flying um, droids uh, out of places like Nevada, and you know those those operations not just rely on the power to to man the operations, but the communications, the cyber protection of that. There's so much that is sort of a domestic power pull, which is a very different power structure than we had, literally energy structure than we had sort of in any previous wars. And you know, it's really ca- has caused a transformational rethink of. The Defense Department's energy posture. You were at the ground floor of a lot of that and continue to work on that. You know, and, and for talk for a second. So when you finished at the Air Force, you you found a Converge Strategies. Talk about why why you saw an opportunity there and sort of what the role of Converge is in that conversation. Yeah. So so you know, working in the Air Force, you know, you we had a a, a sort of front seat picture at exactly what you're describing. All of a sudden, um, and and not all of a sudden, but in the last two to three decades, as we become a globally networked force, you know, across continents through those communication structures and and networks that you just described, John, you know, we have changed the nature of, of the battlefield. And now all of a sudden, as you described, we're supporting active combat operations and conducting active combat operations, active intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance operations from domestic installations here at home at places like you just described in Nevada. And so that changes the nature of the requirement where, you know, electricity and natural gas and the things that power um, our bases here at home are actually requirements that need to be considered by, um, you know, that, that need to be maintained in order to maintain those capabilities 
that are providing support to troops overseas. So it's, you know, traditionally installations, bases, infrastructure issues were an issue of readiness. They were an issue of um, ensuring that our, our forces were ready to deploy when they were called upon and you send a division or a brigade combat team overseas in the time that it's needed. Today, that, that need is instantaneous, that there is a need for uninterrupted access to electricity for core national defense missions um, here at home. And that's that's been a shift over the last couple of decades and and really over the last you know five to ten years, that's accelerated. And so that's why we formed Converge Strategies. I formed Converge Strategies with a good friend, um, Wilson Rickerson, uh, who is a clean energy expert. Uh, of some renown in his own right, um, but really around continuing that mission that we were working on at the Air Force, you know, at the intersection of clean energy, resilience, and national security. And so in, in the last four years since we founded Converge, um, we've really focused on three key areas. Number one is we work directly with the Department of Defense to strengthen their energy resilience initiatives. And we've done that in a few ways, which I'm happy to get into more. Um, number two, we've worked with cities, states, and private sector partners that want to work with the Department of Defense on energy resilience projects. And that's really important because DOD isn't going to be able to do this on its own, given the number of concerns and threats that are that are present to the civilian infrastructure. Uh, and we saw an example of that in Texas. And I know you had my colleague John Munkin on a few weeks ago, specifically to that, where 80% of DOD installations in Texas and Oklahoma experienced moderate to severe disruptions in mission um, that were related to the power outages of the commercial infrastructure. So, you know, working with those cities and states and private sector companies that want to help the Department of Defense strengthen the resilience of the infrastructure that feeds those bases is absolutely critical. And then finally, we want to work with those same city, states, and private sector partners um, who have critical energy requirements of their own. Because everything that I just described about DOD, about a globally networked force, about the need for uninterrupted access to electricity, um, is as true, if not more true, um, for you know the operation of civilian government um, or or civilian or or, or Amazon companies. or Walmart or, or yeah. yeah exactly. FedEx. So you know we we have really become our entire society has become incredibly dependent on electricity and we still view it as a commodity rather than as a lifeline infrastructure sector, um, which, um, you know, we, we really hope to help move that ball forward in, in, into the view of this is absolutely essential and critical and people need to value it like that. Yeah. So I'm going to paint a picture just for the audience. Um, and also, you know, this conversation isn't going to, I'll sort of t- talk about where isn't it going to go and then where it's going to go. Uh, because I think about like what's most interesting to folks listening to this. When a little history on DOED energy for a long time, it was it was always this, it was really never discussed. It was a logistics problem. They paid the bill, fuel costs went up, bill went up. Uh, but in during the, during the, during the fight in Iraq in 2003, General Mattis, a very famous general in charge of a Marine Expeditionary Force, sent back a letter uh, arguing that his folks in uh, in a specific region of Iraq were going in and, and literally dying trying to deliver diesel fuel to power generators in a place with a significant amount of sun and asking, really, why don't we have things like solar power generators here operationally? That kick-started a 
cultural phenomenon within the Pentagon to really look at what's known as operational energy. So operational energy, we'll talk about the domestic side of it here soon, but for you know, most people's heads is those fuel convoys in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, which we had over 3,000 U.S. military deaths associated with fuel convoys in Iraq. Like that's an unbelievable amount of, of uh, unnecessary deaths providing fuel to the battlefield, knowing there's a better way. That in its own right is a really interesting conversation. Uh, and he talks about things like solar-powered backpacks for, for soldiers in the field and small microgrids for operating bases. But what I want to focus on on this, Mike, is the domestic side. Because I feel like that's a better picture of you know lessons that could be learned both from DOD and to others and back in, in terms of sort of the work you guys are doing. So going back to that example of Texas, when the Texas blackouts happened, or the rolling back out of California just you know a year ago, that isn't just affecting the folks living on the base and you know readiness or training. It's literally affecting true live operations uh, that are going overseas. So, first of all, in your your um, your experience, how much of the military leadership has recognized that? How much of that cultural change has started to permeate back here to realize that's a top level priority? And then, you know, a little bit of like, what, where, where does that need to go to really get the leadership continue to be committed to these issues? Yeah, I think we, um, so, you know, in, in the time where, you know, you and I were serving in the Obama administration, it was certainly a point of emphasis. You know, I had a tremendous former boss um, who I think has appeared on the podcast, Miranda Ballantyne, oh, yeah. um, who was the assistant secretary of the Air Force at the time. And she's a transformational leader who really cares about her people. And she came in um, without having any military experience whatsoever, but having phenomenal experience as the, you know, director of global renewable energy for Walmart, you know, the old, maybe one of a few handful of um, corporations that have a similar type footprint to DOD. Um, and so, you know, her, what she quickly realized was this energy resilience issue is a huge problem for Air Force operations. And so, you know, when you have 170 installations in the Air Force alone, more than 500 um, DOD installations worldwide, and so many of those installations are providing necessary and critical core defense capabilities, and so many of them are vulnerable to disruption on the civilian grid, you know, that caught a lot of attention. And so, you know, we did a few things within the Air Force. We we founded the Air Force Office of Energy Assurance, a centralized program office, in line with what you helped found um, the in the Army, the Office of Energy Initiatives now, to help develop and implement large-scale projects for, uh, for bases to be able to maintain critical operations when their power was disrupted. And I think what we've seen now is with the incoming leadership of this administration is just a tremendous refocusing and, and, and redoubling of efforts around ensuring that investments that are tied to, you know, we shouldn't see these things as mutually exclusive, rather they're mutually reinforcing. We can reduce our carbon footprint, which again is breathtakingly large just within the military. We can strengthen the resilience of the infrastructure on our bases and we can strengthen military capabilities by making investments in clean energy, renewable energy, energy storage, um, in order to ensure that our operators have what they need when they need it. So first of all, I'm glad you brought Miranda because I feel like that's 
to give people a sense of scale for a second, I'll just put my old army hat on. The army's got three times the square footage of Walmart. So you think about just the scale of that management is is a beast. And what what really came out of the previous administration, it didn't disappear in the Trump administration. It just sort of moved really into the back, into the shadows a little bit, but continued to operate. And it's re- accelerating again here in the uh, the Biden administration is you created these centralized offices that provided expertise to get this done. So for instance, I always use it, Niagara, Niagara Falls Air Force Base because it's in my backyard here in Buffalo as an example. But if you're the energy manager at that base, you most likely never have done a long-term energy contract for renewables, and you may only ever do one. You've never done a microgrid or storage uh, facility. Uh, you may never do one. If you're a facilities manager for a Fortune 100, same exact challenge. But the advantage, those guys usually have an energy office to turn to in the headquarters to work through. So what, what was created are these sort of centralized hubs to help folks get through that. So the opportunity there is for developers or others can go to those places and engage with somewhat energy experts to help move their projects forward and, and find opportunities. I, I think it's um, really important to think about you know, how those offices get re-elevated, maybe mm-hmm. even restaffed and re supplies, but where, where do you see those shops looking like four years from now with the emphasis of what we're getting out of this administration? Yeah. Uh, so a, a couple more stats that reflect the size and scale of the, of the challenge and the opportunity. So if you add up the land that DOD controls, it's roughly equivalent to the size of the state of Pennsylvania. Wow. So it's, you know, it's an incredible amount of territory and land that DOD controls. Um, you know, that's a lot of training ranges. That's a lot of land that could be used for energy projects and something to keep in mind. To your point about leadership mattering, you know, what we've seen is unprecedented statements immediately at the start of this um, administration by the highest levels of national security leadership. Secretary of Defense Austin, um, you know, on I think his like seventh day on the job issued a um a pretty uh, incredible statement around how central climate change is going to be to the ability of the Department of Defense and the United States um, to, um, you know, f- for our strategic interests and objectives. Um, you know, he labeled it an existential threat to the United States, and I think that's certainly reflected in reality. Um, we also saw um, the Director of National Intel- Intelligence, Avril Haines, um, issue a similar. Uh, statement about the importance of addressing and understanding the implications of climate change and really confronting climate change um, for our core national security interests, much less, you know, the the continued um, existence of our civilization. And so, (laughs) um, you know, those are, that is, so one, the challenges in front of us are are immense. um, Just to point out why that matters, if you were working in the bureaucracy in the Pentagon, those type of statements help align the priorities of what is getting done. So if your leadership doesn't care about these issues, for instance, look at the last four years, you know, your issues fall to the back burner. But if the Secretary of Energy or Secretary of Defense is interested in, in asking questions about it, in a massive bureaucracy like the Pentagon, those issues bubble up quickly and you just have a bigger voice at the table. Yeah. And and we have um, you know, some pretty important folks who are going into the administration or are in the For administration sure. in senior levels 
who are really focused on this issue and understand its importance and, and priority. You know, getting back to your question about um, the program offices themselves, what I see is a real um, uh, convergence of the um, uh, of the issues of climate resilience and clean energy, where you know all of that land, all of those installations are are already suffering from the effects of climate change in Texas, in California, in Hampton Roads, um, in San Diego, everywhere. You know, we're seeing the effects of climate change disrupting the ability of our military installations and operations to advance. And what I see in the in the program offices is, you know, those kinds of concerns, along with the concerns we have over overall electric grid resilience, not just to um, natural events and, you know, increasingly severe and frequent weather events, but you know, attacks on the civilian grid from other countries, physical and cyber attacks um, that are currently risks for the electric grid and right. have been risks for decades that people are very attuned to now. You know, making just a case for large-scale transformational investments, both in the electric grid itself to strengthen the infrastructure that feeds our bases and empowers our core national interests and national security and national defense missions, but also on the installations themselves. So that, you know, ideally, soon in the future, all of our critical missions are powered in such ways um, that are resilient to both cyber attack, physical attack, and commercial disruption, um, and also able to operate because they're tied to um, sources that can't be disrupted the way fuel supply lines can to uh, to be able to operate for extended periods of time without resupply. And so, you know, that's the, I think that's the vision for the future. It obviously implicates, you know, it is going to require transformational investment. It implicates the emergence and, and implementation of new technologies and commercially available technologies on a greater scale than we have today. Yeah, let's talk about the technology part, and then I want to talk about the consortium you guys have started, because I think one of the challenges in the energy and climate space for the Defense Department is their traditional approach is no one else does what we do, whether it be, you know, making uh, making uh, uh, Humvees for the battlefield or, you know, aircraft for the military. It's just a different business model. But for energy, a lot of the technologies we're using for the Apple campus in California or for the grid efforts in uh, places like Virginia can easily transform a military base. You know, and there's always a challenge for if I'm a mid-level entrepreneur with a really cool technology uh, or even a large development shop wanting to take advantage of an opportunity to bring renewables to the military, even figure out where to enter that conversation uh, and knowing that it's going to take much longer than any other customer that I'm selling to one. You know, you guys have created a really interesting consortium to bring together some of their leading experts in the energy security space uh, is known as RISE. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with RISE and the role it's going to play in sort of creating that dialogue? Yeah, absolutely, John. So I, I think you're exactly right, and you're exactly right to identify sort of the different nature of a lot of national defense missions and, and needs and, and why climate and energy action are actually present a really amazing opportunity for innovation. And so, you know, if you look at creating weapon systems and aircraft, combat aircraft and things like that, you know, that is 
narrowly defined as, as defense-oriented equipment overall. But there's an incredibly robust existing energy and climate innovation ecosystem um, with some of the brightest minds, great capital investment, incredible new technologies coming out every day, moving at an incredible pace uh, today. And many of them don't want to work with the federal government because they can't wait, because it takes too long for them to be able to access federal government customers. All of the avenues open to transformational investment in the military today, I think are too slow to meet the size and scale and speed needed to really confront climate change and our energy resilience challenges. And so that's why we we created the Resilient Infrastructure and Secure Energy Consortium um, for a couple of reasons. So that we wanted to organize and structure that energy and climate innovation ecosystem in a way that the Department of Defense can access. So that senior DOD leadership and people who are program managers within the department can describe to this consortium the challenges and problems that they're facing from an energy and climate standpoint, and that industry can provide with a unified voice you know, what the current state of technologies are, what kinds of solutions are available. And we, we're doing it in this consortium structure so that you can collaborate directly more effectively. Um, we've done it in a way that takes advantage of what's called other transactions authority, so that which basically uh, we has been in place since the 50s, since the space race, where it's exempt from some of the requirements for federal contracting that really shut down innovation or or slow down innovation to the point that companies aren't interested. And this is actually a tremendous accelerant of innovation and collaboration. So you can do things like engage directly with DoD officials and help structure you know, the solicitations that DOD is asking for in ways that you know you can fulfill and in ways that push the envelope really effectively. You can listen to DOD and engage directly with DOD officials in ways that will help you, you know, structure your technology investments in ways that you know are meeting the department's critical requirements. And our hypothesis, which I think is pretty thought out, is that the same things that DOD needs today are going to be needed across the board from an uh, energy storage, from uh, renewable generation, from a microgrid and nanogrid standpoint, from a cybersecurity for industrial control system standpoint. And so not only is DOD investing in its, in its own capabilities, but we're also going to help you know, really accelerate the proliferation of energy technologies and climate technologies, you know, across the, uh, across the nation. Interesting. So if you were a you know, growing company or, or a organization that wants to get involved in this, how would you do so? Absolutely. It's very easy. It's free. Um, you can go to rise free. dash. So you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> rise dash consortium.org. And you can join today. And we certainly encourage you to do so. Um, we are having a kickoff event on June 15th um, that's going to feature some senior level DOD officials. Um, actually, I think this is uh, the first time we're announcing it. So congratulations on the scoop, John. Um, and uh, and so it's going to have DOD officials. It's going to have uh, representatives from technology companies. 
And it's going to involve a lot of interaction and collaboration. And that's just the start. We're going to be having events um, throughout the country over the next year and, and hopefully over the next decade that's really going to help accelerate this transformation and transition. Outstanding. Now, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question if you can go back to yourself coming out of law school uh, and before you joined Operation Free and could sit down and, and have a beer with yourself, what piece of advice would you give? Um, yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I know it's a question that you ask for <laughs> I know you do. Uh, all your guests. You're going to have an old-fashioned with yourself. That's, yeah, Mike that's right. makes phenomenal cocktails. <laughs> um, so I think it's really stick with it um, and really focus on what you want to do every day. Because yeah. the, my first job out of law school was actually working on detention issues for a, you know, a small nonprofit and who, who were trying to write basically the 9-11 commission report equivalent, but on uh, detention issues, oh, wow. and um, which was fascinating and obviously the subject that I thought I was really going to work on. But I was, I was stuck in a cubicle. I was reading books and writing memos and not seeing people for days at a time. And what I realized was, you know, that wasn't going to be my path, that I wanted to be in the middle of trying to make policy, trying to implement policy, trying to create sort of new new capabilities that that are in service of that ultimate goal, which is, you know, U.S. national security, you know, global security, global peace and prosperity. And so, so that's how I ended up at Operation Free and the Truman Project originally was I took a lot of meetings, got a chance to meet you, got a chance to meet a few other folks. And again, didn't have any background in energy and climate beyond being a concerned citizen but it has laid the groundwork for the career that I've built so far. And just an incredible number of people that I've gotten to meet through this network who are both my closest friends, but also the people who I know are really aligned around the same kinds of visions and missions for the future. And it's just been, you know, I, I think, so I think it is, don't get stuck on the subject that you think you want to work on, focus on what you want to do every day. Love it. Well, thank you for what you do every day. It's so important to all of our national security. So, Well, thank you, John, for, for again, laying the roadmap for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for finally being on Experts Only. Glad I could book it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in demand, so I understand that. It's not always easy, but... You know, I want to thank the team at Converge for, as always, helping to put this together and, you know, being part of a really interesting conversation that, that I love and am passionate about. And thanks to our producer, Colleen Young and Carly Batten for uh, their work here. Clean Capital. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. We'll make sure we post the information around the RISE Consortium so you can access it before the, the events and be a part of the dialogue with DOD. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, my friend. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.